Well, good morning on this very unique Palm Sunday. We're glad we get to still worship together, so please join us in singing.
Well, good morning, Faith Bible Church. It is great to see you this morning, or rather, it is great to be seen by you this morning on this lovely Sunday. My name is Seth Brown. I'm the pastor of Adult Connections, and on behalf of the church staff and elders, uh, thank you so much for gathering with us online this morning once again as we worship God together. The staff and the elders do miss you very much. We long to see you. Uh, we long to gather back with you and worship Christ together uh, back in this worship center. And uh, let's be praying for that day to come very, very soon. Uh, but as you know, this morning is Palm Sunday. That's the day that we celebrate Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem uh, as he prepares uh, to go to the cross uh, on, uh, on Good Friday. Pastor Jay will be walking us through that, uh, that passage this morning, and he'll be talking about that story. Uh, but this is my fourth Sunday, uh, fourth Palm Sunday at Faith Bible Church, and it truly is one of my favorite Sundays of the year. Um, generally, each year, um, if you've been to a Palm Sunday service, you know this happens. We have all of the children in the church uh, walk through the service waving palm branches. It feels like there's three or 4,000 kids who just keep walking and walking and walking. Uh, but it's a wonderful time for them to join in uh, to celebrate Christ with us. Uh, and Obviously, with the, with the current circumstances, we can't do that this year, but uh, we have come up with what we think is a pretty creative way to continue this tradition. And so this morning, we hope that you are blessed and encouraged uh, by what we have in store for you in just a few moments. Uh, it, it truly is going to be a, a, a wonderful time together. Uh, lastly, we are also very excited about our Good Friday services coming up on Friday evening at 7. Uh, they'll be live streamed on our Facebook page and our church website and our, on our Vimeo page. And that we hope that you and your families will join us as we remember Christ's death and anticipate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. Again, that's Friday at 7 p.m. Uh, here where you're watching this live stream right now. So again, thank you for joining us this morning. Let me quickly pray for us, and we will continue worshiping God through song together this morning. Father, we do thank you for allowing us to gather uh, in our homes, uh, around our screens. Uh, God, this is not ideal, uh, but Father, you have ordained this time. You have sovereignly brought us together in this time to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we do that. We give you the honor and the glory. We give you the, the praise, God. You, you are deserving of that praise this morning. And I pray that you would be lifted up and your name would be lifted up and we would be encouraged and blessed by our time uh, as we gather with the saints all around this community and the state and the country and the world uh, to worship your holy name. God, strengthen us in this time. Give us uh, what we need each day to follow you and continue sharing your gospel and your truth with people in our lives. God, and draw us closer to you in the midst of, of uncertainty and fear. We love you, Father, and we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for Jesus and his death and resurrection. And we do pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 say this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth.
Hosanna to Jesus, our King who reigns.
and the highest to you, our King, who came to earth to bear a cross for us. I pray you would make us especially aware of that this week. God, we have a, a suffering Savior, and we cling to that in our suffering and in our trials. Um, Jesus, we pray that we would love you more. Um, it's in your name. Amen. Amen. Save us now is what you were just singing together. I'm reminded this week of an old Rich Mullins song. I don't know if you appreciated his music, but he had a song which had a refrain in it that said, We are frail. We are not as strong as we think we are. And uh, I just find that to be more and more true as um, we, we find ourselves in these days. We are frail. We're, we're not as strong as we think we are. Something as small as uh, a virus uh, could uh, stop our lives in the way that it has done. The church is called by the Apostle Paul living stones. We are living stones, and even though we're not close together or stacked on top of one another today, uh, we are no less living stones. We are no less spread out, uh, the church of the living God, in the places where we're located this morning. So thank you for gathering in the place that you are uh, to worship together and to now look at the Word of God together. It is Palm Sunday, and that was indicated a few times in our service. Seth alluded to it. The video you watched obviously uh, alluded to it, and hopefully uh, that put an ache in your heart. It put an ache in my heart uh, and a tear in my eye as I saw our kids waving those palm branches and exalting Christ uh, in that way this week. Thank you for all of those families that submitted those uh, videos. That was a special thing uh, to be able to do this morning. There are uh, things in our world that seem so incompatible, so opposite, so juxtaposed, if you will, that it would be absurd for them to ever go together. And so what I'm talking about are things like this. Lay's Cappuccino Potato Chips. This is both an insult to cappuccino and to potato chips. Uh, but here we are, Lay's Cappuccino Potato Chips. These might work for breakfast, so kids, if you're thinking about uh, what you're going to eat on Easter Sunday during the live stream, you might go out and find some of these. But how does this happen? How does something like this happen? Well, Frito-Lay has an annual contest. It's called Do Us a Flavor, and it's a contest where people submit their chip ideas to Frito-Lay, and Frito-Lay not only puts the winning entry into production, but they also give the, the winner a million dollars. So that's how we get cappuccino-flavored potato chips. And these contrasts, they're all over the food world. Think about the popular phenomenon that is salted caramel. You know, who knew that this would be such a big deal? But, but, but goodness, it is, it is everywhere, and I have to say, it is delicious. I have no things, nothing, nothing bad to say about salted caramel. Or, or what about the pairing of chili and chocolate? The heat of the chili pepper with the sweet richness of chocolate. It actually works, doesn't it? Or maybe some of you dip your french fries in your milkshake. I I'm married to a woman who does this. She doesn't dip her french fries. She dips my french fries because I'm the one that orders the french fries, and then she just has some, right? Uh, but she dips those into her milkshake. And so the pairing of things like this comes across so strange, so opposite, but when you try them, they actually make sense. So much so that you wonder how two ingredients like sea salt and caramel ever existed apart from one another. And interestingly, 
as you read the gospel accounts, you see this same phenomenon in the person of Jesus Christ. In the gospel we're looking at today, the gospel of Mark, you might turn there uh, in your homes if you haven't already. John Mark, the writer, goes to great lengths to show that Jesus is king. And in his gospel, there is no question about the unparalleled authority of King Jesus. In Mark's gospel, there is, there is no realm that Jesus does not rule over. He's king over creation. He's king over life itself. He's king over the Sabbath and the Gentiles and the spirit world. He has dominion over sickness and disease, thank God. He has dominion over religion and teaching. The wind and the waves obey him, all of it. The first half of the book of Mark is a frame after frame after frame picture of Jesus demonstrating himself as king. But at the same time, we see that Jesus doesn't really fit into the normal categories of kingship. The world's kings do not act like Jesus acts. He has demonstrated more authority than any earthly king, but he doesn't use that authority the way earthly kings do. And it's this inconsistency, this contrast, that confounds and confuses the disciples. This is largely why they cannot grasp that he is going to be crucified. That freeing the Jews from Roman occupation is not on Jesus' mind, but freeing the world from sin and from death is always on Jesus' mind. Jesus is a king that, that manages to combine both majesty and meekness. In him, we see incomprehensible power and unmatched humility come together in a way that is so beautiful, it's staggering. One of the greatest sermons ever was written and delivered in 1738 by a relatively young Jonathan Edwards. He was 35 years old at the time. And it's a sermon titled, The Excellency of Christ. And in it, Edwards' imagination was captured by the prophetic vision given to John in Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. And there, John is told to look to the throne in heaven and see how the lion of the tribe of Judah, see how he has triumphed. And so when John looks to the throne to see the lion, he records these words. He writes, I looked and I saw a lamb as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne. So John is told to look for a lion, but there in the midst of the throne is a lamb. And so Edward says of this, he says, the lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience and is sacrificed for food and clothing. But we see that Christ is in the text compared to both, because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. There is, in Jesus Christ, a conjunction of such really diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seen utterly incompatible in the same subject. And so Edwards goes on in the sermon to list all the ways that Jesus combines character traits that we would consider mutually exclusive. 
that in Jesus we find perfect justice, yet boundless grace. In Jesus we have absolute sovereignty, yet utter submission. We have a being who is all-sufficient, while at the same time entirely dependent upon God the Father. Yet amidst these complexities, Jesus is, is not bipolar. The, the result of these extremes is not an emotional breakdown. What we see in Jesus is a complete and magnificent whole. So with that in mind, let's watch our king ride into Jerusalem. Mark chapter 11, I'll read verses 1 to 11. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, As they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage in Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. <clears throat> Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. This is God's word. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts today. This passage I just read, it fascinates me. It fascinates me. What, what takes place here is so beautiful, and what is fulfilled here is so incredibly breathtaking that, that my hope today, my hope is that you hear much more than a Palm Sunday that's being preached <clears throat> to basically an empty room. My hope is that you get a, a better picture of the fullness of Jesus Christ today. That's my hope. That's my aim. And so like the text before us, we're going to focus on the Lord Jesus. Three facets of the person of Jesus that are revealed in this passage. It's revealed for us here that Jesus is God, Jesus is King, and Jesus is Lamb. First, Jesus is God. The passage starts with Jesus staging his entry into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. The, the Mount of Olives is east of the main city of Jerusalem. Only the Kidron Valley separates the city itself from the Mount of Olives. Those in our church who recently went to Israel, they can see this geography in their mind's eye. The Mount of Olives is a hill less than a mile from the main city, and it sits about 2,600 feet above sea level. So if you're traveling from the city of Jericho, which is the lowest city on earth, about 800 feet below sea level, the eight-mile hike to the Mount of Olives is an elevation gain of about 3,400 feet. And, and the villages mentioned in this text, Bethpage and Bethany, they would have been on the eastern edge of the Mount of Olives. Bethpage means house of unripe figs. Bethany, nobody's quite sure what Bethany means. But we know that it was the home of Mary and Martha, who were the sisters of Lazarus. 
And we know from John chapter 11 that, that Lazarus was a man that Jesus had raised from the dead. In fact, Jesus would have performed that profound miracle just a day or two in front of the scene in front of us today, the one that I just read. And by the way, today, Bethany is no longer called Bethany. It is a West Bank village called Al-Ezriah. Al-Ezriah means place of Lazarus. So 2,000 years later, an Arab village remains named after the man who was raised back to life by the power of the Lord Jesus. I just found that really profound and amazing. So in verse 1, you have Jesus at the Mount of Olives, He's overlooking the city, the two closest villages being Bethpage and Bethany. And it's here that Jesus begins to get very deliberate with his actions. First, he sends two unnamed disciples into Bethpage on a bit of an errand. He needs something very specific. He needs a donkey. And we're going to talk about more, we're going to talk about the donkey a little bit more in the second point. But I have to repeat again that Jesus is staging all of this from the Mount of Olives. Why do I keep repeating that? Well, I want to read for you Ezekiel eleven twenty three. In Ezekiel 11, the, the prophet Ezekiel is getting a vision from the Lord of what is going to happen when God allows the Babylonians to overthrow Jerusalem. So Judah had fallen into great sin and apostasy, and because of that, God is going to judge them. And just as God had used a pagan nation to conquer the northern kingdom 140 years earlier, he will use another pagan nation, another empire, to, to now conquer the southern kingdom. And when the Babylonians destroyed the city in 586 BC, they would destroy the temple. And as you know, the temple has been very, very important to the Jews. It's where they meet with God. God's presence is there. The glory of the Lord is found in the temple. The ritual sacrifices are performed at the temple. Everything about being a Jew centers upon the temple. But read what happens in Ezekiel 11, verse 23. And the glory of the Lord, which was in the temple, went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So the presence of God, the, the glory of God, left the temple. It, it departed the Holy of Holies and stood on a mountain east of the city. Now, where would that have been? Exactly, the Mount of Olives. So now let's think about where Jesus is headed as he enters the city. He, he's not just going to cruise around a couple of neighborhoods and then be done with the parade. Verse 11 says his destination, it is the temple. He's going to the temple. Why is that feature significant? I think it's because the glory of the Lord is returning to the temple. The temple is, of course, a more fixed version of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was where the Spirit of God dwelt amongst the people of God as they trekked through the wilderness. Well, that, that spirit had departed in 586 BC never to have returned to the people of God. When, when the Jews came back from exile, the glory of God did not return with them. When Judas Maccabeus liberated the Jews from the Greeks in, in 160 BC, the glory of God did not return to the temple. But in John chapter 1, John chapter 1, John tells us when the word became flesh, it did what? It dwelt among us. The term for dwelt is the same as tabernacled. 
It's a word that connects to the presence and glory of God amongst his people. So then back to my point here at the start of of this passage, Mark is telling us that Jesus is God. First by telling us where this triumphant entry, this, this, this procession where it begins and where it ends, the glory of God, the presence of God, the true and better temple has returned to his people. The glory departed to the Mount of Olives in 586 BC, and now he's returning to the Mount of Olives in early 30s AD. But that's not all. We further see the divinity of Christ on display throughout these first six verses of chapter 11. Look at verse 2. Go into the village opposite you, so opposite Bethany, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there in which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. And so you ask, how did Jesus know that? How did he know about the colt? Why does he have detailed knowledge of the livestock in Bethpage? Well, he knows that because he's God. This is omniscience. He, he knows every donkey, every colt, every post, everything that can be known, and he knows everything to, there is to know all the time unless he, for his own purposes, restricts that knowledge. So this donkey heist that he sends the disciples on is, is evidence of his omniscience. Go find that particular animal, and they find it just as he said. Now to be expected, when you go and take somebody's donkey, there's going to be some kind of pushback. And so Jesus prepares them for this. He says, if anyone says to you, verse 3, what are you doing or why are you doing this? Just say, the Lord has need of it. It's not a very good explanation if someone is stealing your donkey. I suppose I've never had a donkey of mine stolen. I've never had a donkey. But it does assume one thing. It assumes that Jesus knows that whoever owns this animal knows who the Lord is. He doesn't even give them an explanation. He just says, the Lord has need of it. It's sort of Jesus' version of these are not the droids you're looking for, if you're familiar with the Star Wars movies. And this word for Lord here, this is not the word for master. This is the word kurios. This is the word Lord, meaning God the covenant God of Israel. And Jesus just referred to himself using that name. He is the Lord, and he has need of it. One of the ways we know Jesus is God is because he refers himself to God. Not just here, but all over the Gospels, he explicitly names himself to be God. If you're looking at the I am statements in the Gospel of John or at other places when he confounds, confuses, and enrages the religious leadership is because of what they consider to be blasphemy, which is him calling himself the Lord. And some might say, well, isn't that just circular logic to say that Jesus is God because he says that he's God? Well, no, it's not, because when people refer to themselves as God, they're either crazy or lying, or it's actually true. And with Jesus, it is true. He's God. He also knows himself to be God by, by actually riding this colt. Colt is the word uh, polos. It, it can mean small horse or donkey, either one. Horses weren't really very common in this time and place, so it's easy to assume that this is a donkey. And my larger point about Jesus riding it is this. Mark informs us that this juvenile donkey has never been ridden 
And I'm no, again, expert on donkeys and what it takes to break one so that it can be ridden, but Jesus doesn't even need that done. He has divine control over this young animal. Now, last week, my family, we got what I am calling a quarantine pup. We got a dog. Uh, and, and she does everything that a puppy does. She chews on things she's not supposed to. She nips at you and bites on your hands in a way that's exasperating. She sometimes goes in bathroom in the house. I would love to have divine control over that animal, but I don't. Maybe I will at some point, but it's just not there yet. Jesus has divine control over this animal. Jesus is God. And just to summarize this first point, the commentator James Edwards, he writes this. The first six verses of this narrative are devoted to preparations for the entry into Jerusalem and are narrated so as to demonstrate Jesus' precise foreknowledge and his sovereignty. It's a great summation. This is here. This is showing us that he is the Lord. Now let's look at Jesus as king, verses 7 through 10. And since we're on the subject of Jesus riding this donkey, there are a number of ways that this particular action distinguishes him as king. So the first way is the commandeering of, of a horse or a donkey or a camel in ancient times. That was the prerogative of a king. If you like cop shows, you, you, you're familiar with the chase scene where uh, the, the cop has to go and commandeer um, some civilian's vehicle. Well, that was the right of a king in, first, in the first century. The cop in the show just flashes the badge. The king, obviously being known to the people, could commandeer any animal that he wanted. That is what Jesus has just done. We also have a couple other things that distinguish him as king and as it relates to, 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 to riding this animal. We read in, in Numbers 19 and also in Deuteronomy 21 that an unbroken colt was regarded as sacred, which made it appropriate for a king to ride. Rabbinical teaching would also say that no one else may ride a king's horse. So that was a common understanding as well. In 1 Kings chapter 1, King David marked Solomon as heir to the kingly throne, and he did this by putting him on his own mule and sending him to be anointed as the king. But the big one, the, the, the one with real punch, is a prophetic text from the book of Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9, which was read for you this morning. I'll read, uh, I'll, I'll read the first half of that again, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So you wonder why Jesus didn't just walk into the city of Jerusalem? Wonder why he, he allowed for all of this fanfare and all of this attention? Why he had to ride in on a donkey? Well, there it is. Zechariah 9.9. In Mark, you see, Jesus had spent a great deal of his ministry trying to quiet the crowds, try, trying to keep his identity sort of on the down low, but that's not true anymore. Jesus is going public here, and he's doing it in a big way. He is fulfilling a 700-year-old prophecy. Behold, here I am, your king. I'm coming to you. Then in verse 8, where it says, many spread their coats on the road. This is a, f a furtherance of this idea that Jesus is king. Why would they spread their coats in the road? 
Well, this was, again, an ancient gesture, a custom that showed that they were submissive. Kings were always elevated, and people were under their feet, and this is a way to symbolize that. You see, the, the same thing you see in, in, in the coronation of Jehu. It, this is in 2 Kings chapter 9. Jehu, when he is coronated as king, the same thing happens. And so by spreading their coats before him, they're saying, we place ourselves under your authority, Jesus. We're affirming you. You're our king. You are our sovereign. And their hope for the kingdom is really high. It's really high. But you know, they had their own view. They had their own view of all of this, and it was very earthbound and fleshly. They thought what was going to happen was Jesus was going to empower them to attack the Romans and throw out the Gentiles and give them the place in the world that they thought was a fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. And then there's the detail about the palm, the palm branches. They spread the palm branches on the road as well. The other gospels say that, that palm branches were being waved as the procession moved along. Is there any significance to the palm branches? Well, absolutely. Here's another slide I'd like to show you. The palm branch was the national symbol of Israel. It was on their coinage. It's actually still on their coinage. Uh, the Star of David wasn't a recognized symbol for the Jews until the 3rd or 4th century. It wasn't even on their flag until 187, or 1897, I should say. So for centuries, the palm was the national emblem. It was like our flag or, or, or the bald eagle. It was just a profound symbol of patriotism. This coin that I just showed you was a 2nd century coin. I think it was from 133 or 134 A.D., and so what you have to see is, is this growing profession or procession of followers is moving from the Mount of Olives into the city, and, and they're waving and throwing out these palm branches. If we're to transfer this scene to Edmond, Oklahoma in 2020, this is our 4th of July parade. This is Liberty Fest marching up Broadway. The last time something like this was done in Israel was when Judas Maccabeus liberated Jerusalem from the Syrians in 160 BC. And what did the people do in 160 BC? History tells us they paraded him through the city and they waved palms. The hope of the crowd in Mark 11 is that that liberation is about to happen again. And so this explains why they're shouting what they're shouting. They're shouting, Hosanna! You know, we think of Hosanna as a term associated with worship, but it's not really. It's really a cry. It's a prayer. It means save us now. They're looking to Jesus to save them, but not really from sin. They're looking to him to save them from Rome, from oppression, and from occupation. And the song they're singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is straight from Psalm 118, which is a psalm nicknamed the Conqueror's Song. Because the king, the great military ruler, would one day come and conquer all of Israel's enemies, putting them under his feet. So the mob that's welcoming Jesus into the city, th these pilgrims know that all these signs relate to the kingdom. The kingdom will be a kingdom of salvation. The kingdom will be a kingdom over which the son of David rules. The kingdom will be a kingdom of peace, and the kingdom will be a kingdom of glory. Everything they're shouting is true. It's scriptural. It's borrowed from the Old Testament. It's accurate. This is 
God's king. But what they don't see is that this is not God's time. For what the crowd is looking for, this is not yet the time. The time will come. Revelation 19 and 20 describes that time. It describes Jesus riding in again. But on that day, he will not be riding a donkey. He will be riding a white horse. Its name will be faithful and true. And when he arrives, he will destroy the ungodly in a massive judgment that will sweep across the planet. And he will establish his throne in Jerusalem. And he will reign there for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. And beyond that, forever and ever, because of his kingdom, there will be no end throughout all eternity in the new heavens and in the new earth. But this isn't that time. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is also lamb. Jesus is also lamb. We have to remember, Jesus is arriving at the time of the Passover. Jerusalem was normally a city of about eighty to 100,000 people. During Passover, it would swell, Josephus tells us, to about 2, 2.1 million. Jesus is lamb. The, the very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey was the day that the Jewish people called Lamb Selection Day. The 10th day of the month of Nisan, when the lambs that were going to be sacrificed in the temple for Passover, when they were brought into the city. Exodus 12, verses 3 through 5 tells us that at the first Passover, God had commanded the Hebrew people to take a lamb into each home and to scrutinize each lamb to ensure that it was without blemish, that it was worthy of sacrifice. The lamb would be inspected for four days, and if, and if it met the criteria, no blemishes, then it was slain on the 14th day of Nisan, that day of Passover. And if you're doing that simple math in your head and wondering, okay, now, if Jesus rode in on a Sunday, and it was the 10th, the 14th would be Thursday. Okay, I, I thought Jesus died on a Friday and rose on a Sunday. What, what's going on here with the timing? Well, the timing is interesting but it can be explained. The Jews of Jesus' day had two different methods of reckoning the calendar. The Pharisees, as well as the Jews from the region of Galilee and all the districts to the north, they counted their days from sunrise to sunrise. But the Sadducees and the people from Jerusalem and Judea, they calculated the days from sundown to sundown. And what that meant is the 14th of Nisan for a Galilean fell on a Thursday of this week, while the 14th of Nisan for the citizens of Jerusalem fell on the Friday. So what that means is the slaughter of the lambs would take place in two periods on successive days, which one, would ease the work of the priests, but two, it also made room for all the people to eat the Passover meal in Jerusalem proper, which was a law mandated by the book of Deuteronomy. And this is why Jesus and his disciples, it's why they didn't celebrate their meal in Bethany. They were likely staying in Bethany, but you remember Jesus sent some of the disciples into the city to prepare the place where they would have their meal because you have to observe the meal inside the city. And, and more importantly, that, that twist in timing explains why Jesus and the disciples, who were all Galileans except Judas, it explains how they ate the Passover meal on Thursday evening and why they ate it on Thursday evening. And more importantly, those somewhat complicated details about timing explain how Jesus could both observe the Passover and also the next day be slain on the Passover. You understand that? Everybody raise your hand if you understand that. Good job. Okay, very good. 
probably flew through that a little too quickly. But now, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan, on Lamb Selection Day, he rode in, he rode in to be scrutinized by his people for four days. If you read the rest of the book of Mark leading up to his crucifixion, it's question after question after question after question coming at Jesus. He's being scrutinized. He's being drilled. They found him to be blameless, without blemish. Pilate even said so. Pilate said, I found no fault in this man. So on the 14th of Nisan at 9 a.m. in the morning, as the second day's Passover lambs were being brought into the temple to be slain, as you know, our perfect Passover lamb was led out of the city. He was nailed to a cross. At 3 p.m., as the last Passover lamb was killed by the high priest in the temple, Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit. So it's four days prior to Passover, the 10th of Nisan, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. He is God. He has sovereignly arranged the timing of this entire event. He is king. The whole scene points to his ruling power and his kingdom. And he is spotless lamb. Just as John the Baptist declared of him, he is the lamb of God. There he is. He takes away the sin of the world. There's a church in Verden, Germany, and it has a carving of a lamb high on one of its towers. And the carving is there because when the church was being built, a safety rope broke and a workman had fallen from a great height and plummeted headlong into the churchyard below, which was cluttered because of the construction with large stones. And as, as this happened, his co-workers rushed down expecting to find the man dead, but miraculously he was still alive and only slightly injured. How did he survive such a fall unscathed? Well, between two of the large rocks, a lamb was nibbling on some grass. And the falling man landed directly on top of the lamb, which broke his fall and undoubtedly saved his life. However, in the process, the lamb itself was crushed and killed and so, in gratitude for the lamb's sacrifice and for his own deliverance, the workman carved a lamb on the church at the exact height from which he had fallen. If you're at home today, and you likely are, and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, my invitation to you, really my charge to you, is to fall on the lamb. Fall on Jesus Christ. Fall on the one sacrificed for you on the one crushed for your iniquities. Look to him today. He is God. He is king. He is lamb. He went to the cross for you. He shed his blood so that you could uh, have the forgiveness that can only be found in him. Look to the lamb and fall on him today. I want to close with a quotation that's in the note sheet that was put online. It's going back to that sermon I mentioned earlier by Jonathan Edwards, The Excellency of Christ. And he speaks more on this contrast between lion and lamb, this contrast of who Jesus is. The quotation starts, If Christ accepts you, you, you need not fear that you will be safe, for he is a strong lion for your defense. And if you come, you need not fear that you will not be accepted, for he is like a lamb to all that come to him. 
You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him and cast yourself upon him. You will certainly be graciously and meekly received by him. Though he is a lion, he will only be a lion to your enemies, but he will be a lamb to you. It could not have been conceived had it not been so in the person of Christ. That there could have been so much in any Savior that is inviting and tending to encourage sinners to trust in him. Whatever your circumstances are, you need not be afraid to come to such a Savior as this, the Lion and the Lamb. So here we have our king riding in on a donkey. Luke 19 tells us he's weeping over the fate of the city. The worshipers do not grasp the magnitude of this event. The Romans likely are scoffing at this victory parade. And though it is labeled a triumphant entry, this is also a death march. What a seeming contradiction. What a beautiful savior is Jesus. I want us to do a little, a little something different as we close right now. Rather than me closing in prayer and moving into the benediction, I want to push that time into your homes this morning. So I want you to spend some time out loud, verbally, uh, thanking Jesus for all that he is, for all that he reveals himself to be in, in this verse and in other verses, for all the ways that his salvation comes to us. Spend time thanking him for his divinity, for the fact that he's God. Spend a moment praising him for being authoritative and good king. And fall on your knees and thank him for being the lamb who was slain to save you from your sins. I'm just give you about 60 to 90 seconds to do that in your homes, and then we'll close uh, with a song here in just a moment.
Thank you to our worship team for leading us this morning, for our technical team for making all of this possible. An announcement before the benediction, uh, just a reminder of the Good Friday service that will take place this Friday at 7 p.m. That's the live stream. It'll be archived as well. Uh, but something to, to prepare for uh, as we look forward to 7 p.m. is we will observe the Lord's Supper uh, during the Good Friday services. So you might prepare for that, have those element, elements ready to go uh, in that service. We'll lead you through taking them, um, uh, but we want you to be ready uh, for that time during that service. Uh, if that at all violates your conscience or bothers you in any way, um, feel free just to, to not uh, participate in that aspect of the service uh, and wait until we regather uh, so that we can do that here um, maybe in the, in the weeks or months to come. The benediction is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 2. I'll send you out with this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Enjoy his peace today. Bring your tired and bring your shame.